Hello, and welcome to The Mummer's Farce, the podcast about the visual production of HBO's Game of Thrones. I'm Dan Solberg. And I'm Kate Perry. And today, we're going to be talking about Season 3 of Game of Thrones. But before we get to that, we should note, we've got a new setup here. Yeah. New mics, new recording outfit. We'll see how it sounds in the end. (laughs) (laughs) It's very elaborate from where I'm sitting. Got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Well, we didn't end up migrating to the studio, but we did get the new equipment, so we're trying it out. Hopefully it all sounds good. I'm sure it will. (laughs) But... (laughs) We've got, uh, we've got a couple episodes here from the beginning of Season 3. Both of these episodes are directed by Daniel Minahan, who we have seen prior in Season 1. He actually directed three episodes, including what I think was both of our favorites in The Golden Crown, Episode 6. Yeah. And so he directs both of the openers here for, for Season 3. I think they were great. Yeah. Uh, what did, I mean, just sort of generally, how did you feel about them? I liked them a lot. I, I feel like it... I feel like the show is in its stride here. Yeah. Like, it was, it was a lot of good stuff in season two. I thought season two ended very strongly, and but it was kind of like a, a climax there at the end. And it was kind of like, okay, well, let's go back into the wall. But I don't, I would say not really. I would say this really picks up, and this feels like episodes on a quality of those two finale episodes in a certain sense. I mean, they're not. There's not a giant battle and all the, the kind of concept of mm-hmm. something like Blackwater, but maybe something more like episode 10. Yeah. And the, the tension stays high. We're moving all over the map. Lots of plates spinning at the same time, but it comes off really well. Yeah. So would you like to go ahead and give us a recap here of episode 301? This is Velar do Hyrus. Mm-hmm. So we open with Sam meeting up with the remnants of the Night's Watch at the Fist of the First Man. Meanwhile, Jon Snow is pledging himself to Man's Raider. Tyrion is getting used to his scar and his diminished position. He asks his father for his ancestral seat, Casterly Rock, but is denied in no uncertain terms. Davos is rescued by Salador San and makes his way back to Stannis. He attempts to kill Melisandre and is thrown in the dungeon. Rob's army arrives at Harrenhal to find all inhabitants murdered except for Kyburn, whom we're meeting for the first time. Littlefinger tells Sansa that he wants to get her out of King's Landing, but Ross tells Shay that Sansa shouldn't trust Littlefinger. Marjorie is working to endear herself to Joffrey and to the common people, but not to Cersei. In Astropor, Daenerys considers buying slave soldiers, meets Missandei and Krasnus, and Barristan Selmy saves her from assassination and pledges himself to her quite a bit <laughs> yeah we went all over the place one thing I, I definitely noticed even in this first one though i felt like we were still spending like a decent amount of time in each spot yeah We'd sort of often have a couple different scenes within a location be like oh follow a character here interacting with this character and now moving on to another set and it would really feel like we're spending some quality time with each sort of environment instead of sort of jumping around i think maybe only uh, Rob or somebody like that is somebody we kind of pop into and then pop out. Most everybody else we sort of plant for a little bit. Yeah, and or see or see more than once. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it does a good job of reminding us of some of the issues from the previous seasons, from establishing at least for some characters what their arc and purpose will be for the rest of the show. Mm-hmm. But then also we meet in these two episodes some some of my favorite characters, and so yeah. um, I, it was great. It, I had a good time all around. Yeah, it's jam-packed with introductions. They actually even did, a, HBO did like a little featurette that was all like, the new characters, and it's, it goes on for a while because there's there's quite a few of them. It's, 
I think the, the WB mentioned at the front of that featurette, they're like, we're still at the point where we're casting more than we're killing. <laughs> so that is true. Yeah. Perhaps short-lived at a certain point, but right. right now the world is expanding tremendously. Yeah, lots of new faces. Uh, so it starts with uh, another cold open, one that I actually had forgotten. I I'd... forgot about this one too. Yeah. And we could make the same joke that we made. I know. It's... That it's a literal cold open. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote cold open, ha. <laughs> but it's another shot of how unimpressive it is to run on a glacier. Oh, it's also Sam. So yeah. we're not supposed to think that he's like very athletic. But I liked this whole setup that he he comes and he finds what he thinks is a, is a living brother of the Night's Watch. But mm-hmm. he's a frozen solid holding his head. It is a an interesting sort of skip over. Like, they have the conceit, of course, of like we have a tremendous cut. We're between episodes, but we're also between seasons. I think they can get away with a little bit more of like time has passed. Mm-hmm. Though they, we actually when we open, we open total darkness and we hear audio of like a battle going. We hear mm-hmm. White Walker screams. We hear swords slashing, people dying. Men of the Night's Watch, we we would presume, and then. We fade in on essentially a time-lapse video of this Icelandic landscape and the sun sort of setting. Mm-hmm. And we like fade out of that, and then we come, come to Sam, who is uh, you know, recovering slash running away and, and running for his life. So like, they find another way of hiding a battle from us, a battle that would be very elaborate yeah. um, in the books involving things like the zombie bear that they finally got to do in the most recent <laughs> season. This would have been the first appearance of a zombie bear, presumably, or ice spiders, which I would probably, I don't know, maybe we'll see an ice spider. I'd be surprised. It would <laughs> it would be really hard for it not to look totally goofy, <laughs> but I'd like to see it. I'd like to see an ice spider, yeah. But we skip over it, yeah. and we're not going to open the season with another huge battle. We just have, again, the presumed sort of aftermath. Everybody's all bloodied, and they talk about how many men they lost. And and I counted, uh, there's about, it seems like there are about 15 left, mm-hmm. including most of our main characters. We've got G.R. Mormont, we've got Ed, we've got Gren, Sam survives, and what is his name? The one who keeps antagonizing. Oh, Rast? Yeah, oh, well, obviously, with that kind of name. Um, <laughs> yeah, so most of the people that we have met are still living. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a it's a good way of being a, a very direct continuation of what happened last time, but also this kind of interesting time lapse. Be like, here you, we left you with Sam, but now we're back with Sam. But actually, some time has passed. I actually I could see there being a little bit of potential confusion there if you weren't paying very close attention. Be like, oh well, there's Sam. What, what's going on now? Is he running away from the White Walker that saw him? Yeah. Kind of, but but he's also running to the fist. Yeah. So. Yeah, and he, he hasn't done his one job, which is to send the ravens. Um, so at least in Sam's arc, he is still on a low. He hasn't become this like brave person who's competent that like that he'll become. Right now he's still kind of, he's ready to lay down in the snow and die. Mm-hmm. From there we, we do stay in the north. We go over to John, see what he's up to. He we left him sort of on the precipice of these new introductions mm-hmm. and we meet Mance Raider and Tormund mm-hmm. Giant's Bane. With a good misdirect that is from the mm-hmm. books right. um, that the Tormund is the one who's more impressive looking but mm-hmm. that Mance is the one who's been able to gather all these people who hate each other. Yeah, Mance is just sort of sitting in the shadows and sort of letting things play out. You could see that as maybe trying to 
still get the measure of John even before sort of introducing himself. See, so like, how would he interact with somebody who, you know, he thinks is the king? Right. And he bows and makes a fool of himself. Right. <laughs> and this was, for our sort of major arcs, this episode establishes both of them really for John and Daenerys. Mm. So John tells, it's, and it almost, it's easy to forget that he saw a White Walker and Craster's baby, like, mm-hmm. and that really affected him because he doesn't, a lot of stuff happens in the meantime. Right. He doesn't seem that affected. Right. But he says, I want to fight for the side that fights for the living. Mm-hmm. And this is the answer that convinces Mance that like this guy actually wants to join us and that the, the Night's Watch are complicit and that the wildlings trying to get south of the wall are trying to fight for mm-hmm. life. And so this is really what will drive John forever for yeah. the rest of the show, I think. Right, because um, there, there's a bit of truth in it, right? He's going to stay loyal to his Night's Watch and he's not actually wanting to betray them, but... There is a truth in it. Yeah. And that's probably why it's so convincing. If if we're to believe that Mance actually is convinced. Do you think Mance is actually convinced? Or is Mance kind of like one of these kind of like corn half-hand type figures where it's like, this is probably going to end up with me dead, but I want to see where this goes. Yeah. And it must be it must be also like, I see a lot of myself in mm. you, my lad, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I wonder, I mean, if we imagine that Mance is actually quite sort of if he has a lot of forethought that he may see that it's important to convince John of the humanity of the wildlings mm-hmm. that even if his plan doesn't really work out that it'd be better to have someone who thinks it's a good idea to let them through the wall yeah. I don't I don't know that we're given any hints that way but if he if he has that much forethought then maybe it's important for him that John understands his project and like loves the wildlings yeah <laughs> You know, I think we'll see this in a number of episodes, sorry, in a number of instances this episode. I feel like there is a thematic thematic through line in this one. And I know the episode title is Velo Dohiris, and I think we could certainly read something into that. But I see more of a theme of imprisonment and sort of containment. And essentially, that starts here with John, who is Egret and the Wildling's prisoner and is going to act like he's not mm-hmm. um so he can sort of like be relatively free within that environment but he's the first of many sort of imprisonments that mm-hmm. we see this episode Tyrion is literally shuttled off into a prison after the blackwater which is where we're, where we're heading next then mm-hmm. cersei is then on the outside gleeful to be on the outside of the bars yeah for once yeah we see that at harrenhal a bunch of people were prisoners and then murdered mm-hmm. sansa of course is still a prisoner davos will become a prisoner Joffrey is self-imprisoned entity at this point yeah. where he locks himself in his litter instead of going out into the streets where Marjorie is because yeah. he's terrified of the common people. Right. And all the all the unsullied are essentially sure. prisoners as well of a certain of a certain sense. And certainly um Sande, even even right. maybe more so because she hasn't although we're supposed to believe that the unsullied don't have like the emotional or mental capacity to mm-hmm. to revolt, but they at least have the physical ability. Mm-hmm. And I guess Arya and Gendry and Hapai are all recently unimprisoned. Yeah, thanks to their own, thanks to their Catelyn uh, is a prisoner. Escape, and that that will become That's important. Right. So, so it's it's all over the place. <laughs> yeah. So Valadiris, I think, is all men must serve. Mm-hmm. So who who is serving? Who is serving here? Tyrion is supposed to sort of do his job by not doing the job that he wants. Yeah. Like, that he's supposed to shut up and accept whatever he's given. Mm-hmm. He is asked to serve, and he will kind of go forward with it. You know, mm-hmm. 
who is serving? Davos, I guess, is yeah. serving. Um, these the Unsullied. People, the Unsullied are for sure serving. Barristan, I guess. That's right, because he does show up at the end. It seems like it's a nice continuation from All Men Must Die to have All Men Must Serve. It's it's the words that are said. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of... Uh, I guess John is serving in a certain sense as well. And maybe yeah. that's in part because they always put him on the... He's got the thumbnail picture when you go yeah. on the website for this one. So I always think of John in the north as connected to Velo Dohiris Velo here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess he's continuing to secretly serve the Night's Watch. Yeah. And another visual theme that runs through both of these episodes and must be a Minahan sort of token is mirrors. Yes. Everyone is looking at themselves in the mirror. That was... That was um, that was my theme for episode two. It's well, I don't be mean all to, about mirrors. But it also it starts here with with Tyrion examining his right. scar and and sort That's of right. um, this one. staring staring at his own face, which doesn't really look that bad. No, it he fares so much better than he does in the books. Now he's just got kind of a cool scar in right. the show, right? Instead of looking pretty gnarly, right? Um, so <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I I the conversation between Tyrion and Cersei in with the you're not half as clever as you think still makes me more clever than you mm-hmm. some of my most favorite her paranoia has started here or i mean it's probably started before but she seems really afraid that Tyrion is going to tell her secret to mm-hmm. tywin even though it's just not on he doesn't care it seems it's so i mean it's it, i guess it makes sense when you it i think it's a common human failing to think that everyone is centered around the same problem that you yourself are centered yeah. on but um I think he cares a lot less about that than she thinks he does. Um, yeah. And he loves her two kids and her brother. So what? Anyway, <laughs> it's what it's what she's obsessed with. Yeah. Well, you know, also, if we think about just the return to the prison thing one more time, like because when we visit Tyrion here, it's the first of many sets that we have, particularly in King's Landing, but some elsewhere of like small slats of light streaming in mm-hmm. it gives every room sort of like this closed in blocked in thing even ones that aren't necessarily like prisons like when we go to the brothel with Bronn, essentially have this one kind of streak of light coming through it does it'd be this kind of, kind of common theme throughout all the interiors here yeah which is really contrasted with when he and with Tyrion and Bronn are walking they're sort of it's not even i guess from his quarters to the red keep it's not entirely clear mm-hmm. to me but the sun and the ocean it feels so open and mm-hmm. beautiful and so there is something about like it's the space itself that is dangerous or like confining and 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 a place for secrets where it's like the open air that they walk through is is gorgeous yeah. um and and feels although maybe they are exposed i don't know i i think it might be a little of both because we do have Davos on the rock mm-hmm. as well and we have a couple shots of him from very far away on top of this tiny little rock and it's sort of like oh Davos technically like he has physically speaking the ultimate freedom now he can go in any direction he's not contained in any mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. but it's also like he can't he can't survive with that kind of freedom and then he also can't survive his own kind of sort of mentality he needs to be serving Stannis, you know, and, and, right. and back to work. Which is, uh, you know, Kasala Rosan says, I serve no man, right? Mm-hmm. And so he has taken that freedom to be like, I'm going to I'm gonna go anywhere. You should go anywhere. We're, mm-hmm. you know, but but Davos can't. And so then he goes back to the people who are going to throw he him. He goes back to prison, yeah. basically. <laughs> Which, if we could just continue that one, because mm-hmm. this is where I start getting on board with Stannis. 
because he's terrible. But the way that he <laughs> greets Davos when he comes in, which is this look of like he's facing out into the ocean and he does his half turn, looks at him, doesn't say anything, turns back around. So he's not facing him and says, heard you were dead. <laughs> and that's it. And it's just like he's so unfriendly and now he's got his 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 beard grizzle mm-hmm. going on and he's gonna be uh a little bit hardened and weary for the rest of his time on the show and overly and dangerously reliant on melisandre yeah yeah so also melisandre's again probably really overstepping the, her powers here oh, she says i could have saved those men right and, uh... and again she she just operates in this is where like it's so hard to tell is she a legitimate conduit or is she just a hustler? Mm-hmm. Because it's easy to say when you weren't there, I could have fixed that, <laughs> right? And so it's just, she, oh, she's at her most frustrating mm-hmm. right now because she's so cocky. Because you know, somebody could have even asked, like Davos, somebody could have asked like, well, how? How would you save them? And she would have come up with some sort of non-answer i just just could have yeah it's like i guess we'll never know (laughs) yeah so she's looking like the cat that ate the canary because she's just she feels totally justified that Mm. she was left out from one thing and it went really badly and everyone else has either been thrown in prison or died and that uh, stannis will only talk to her now and has given her pretty much free reign yeah i really like the line when davos is talking to salador san where Davos is persistent, like, please take me back to Dragonstone. I need to go. And Salvador Sanz is like, there's nothing for me there. He says, Salvador Sanz says, if you go back there, they'll kill you. Even if you succeed in killing Melisandre, they'll kill you. Mm-hmm. And he says, you've only just come back to life. Why don't you stay alive a little bit longer? And I was like, oh, that's, that's a really yeah. good line. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the kind of advice that Davos gives a lot in season seven, where he was just mm-hmm. like, I've only lived to an old age. Don't listen to me, right? That he seems maybe a little bit more, he becomes a little bit more like Salador San. Mm-hmm. He's like, don't be a hero. Just try to live. But right now he's still trying to be a hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could talk, before we totally leave uh, King's Landing, there's the conversation between Tyrion and Tywin Yeah, that that I just really love. The I, It's not really a criticism of the show and there probably was no space for it. I wish that they could have done a little bit with Tywin's father, Tydos. Yeah. Because so much of what he fears about what Tyrion will do, making his house a joke and turning it into a whorehouse, like those are fears that are based on what he saw his father do. And this is all explained right, in the books. Right. And it just it gives him it's it's frustrating that he doesn't see Tyrion for what he is, which is like actually very skilled and good, but it's I feel like so much of what he does is informed by his fear of humiliation mm-hmm. and this sort of, again, like, he'll end up, well, we know, if you, spoiler alert, he'll end up with Shay in his bed. So the things yeah. that he's critical of in Tyrion and his father are also things that he has in himself. Right. And I, I wish that they could have done a little bit of that because yeah. it is a it is good, it's good background for his character. Otherwise, he for someone who is so rational and practical and like can see people's gifts like Arya, right mm-hmm. he cannot see T- Tyrion's, and that's yeah, he's, sad because blinded by it yeah yeah they they might say something about it at some point in the show i can't i can't remember but he mentions even in this in this altercation here about Tyrion wearing the proud lion of lannister that what his father wore and his grandfather before him but like again like you were saying tydos he Tywin kind of loathed them, you know, and so 
yeah, it's it's he's using him sort of as a prop, but is that just an oversight of the show, or is this Tywin being sort of just defensive and trying to make a point and knowing yeah. that Tyrion can't really refute him anyway? So yeah, and just lying about his own feelings or the illustriousness of his house, as right. if his father weren't this joke. Right. So I just I. Not that there was room in this episode for any yeah, other yeah. new information, but it feels like such an important part of his character and makes some of his loathing for Tyrion more clear. It's yeah. not just that uh, he's a little person. It's also that he reminds him so much of his father, whom he loathed. And I wanted to mention Tywin's coat, cloak, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Yeah. Um, I actually noticed it how... I know we had talked about like, oh, Cersei goes on to dress a little bit more like Tywin. This is like the exact material. Yeah, it's like yeah, the exact I that pattern. Too. It's like this kind of again this double layered thing where you have the top layer that has all these kind of holes in it and this mm-hmm. kind of polka dot kind of pattern, like very fine dots. So, mm-hmm. and this sort of black underneath, and it looks like it could be one garment with sort of this is kind of patterning on it, but it's this layered thing, and she totally wears that same. Thing. Yeah, I'm going to keep a closer look on Tywin's clothes to see how much of it is repeated later in mm-hmm. Cersei's clothes, because um, I bet it's a lot. Yeah, I felt like some of it was repeated in, in Jamie's clothes later, but I also think maybe that was just some Lannister kind of uniform stuff. Mm-hmm. Cersei's choices always feel a little bit more fashionable. Yeah. Like, I have choices here. <laughs> I chose to wear this. Right, right. And her, her clothes are even in this episode, are starting to change a little bit. She's still wearing, I think Michelle Clapton describes it as like kimonos, mm-hmm. that, that they, they took a really uh, sort of loose Japanese focus for her first few episodes, but now it's becoming more armored. And so we're starting to see her fitted garb that will become more and more that way as the seasons progress. Yeah, and even Marjorie mentions it outright. Mm-hmm. She says she feigns compliments uh, to Cersei about the metalwork and all the seam work in, in her garment. We don't get a great look at it this episode. It's like really trying to capture a screenshot yeah. of it. Next episode we get some better shots of it. So you just hold on to hold on to that sort of like thinking like, oh, I want to see what that looks like. You do get to see it later if you watch to the second one. But yeah, it's it's weird sort of like the armor is just kind of growing. <laughs> she, yeah. Before she just had this kind of belt thing and now it's sort of expanding up. She's got a thicker collar yeah. on and uh it's, again, still, like, an image of armor more so than actual armor. Yeah. Like, it's still kind of very decorative. Yeah. But uh, it's definitely, like, thematically consistent with her character being more guarded as she continues to be more and more guarded of Joffrey, which we all know that Mar- Marjorie is manipulating Joffrey, mm-hmm. but it feels so much like it's for Joffrey's own good. He needs a little bit right. of manipulation. I actually was thinking, I'm teaching uh, a Russian culture class right now and mm-hmm. we're talking about uh, Ivan the Terrible and his wife Anastasia and she was considered this calming presence for him mm-hmm. and that made he like made better decisions while she was living mm-hmm. and you almost get the idea that if Marjorie were allowed to marry Joffrey that maybe she could calm him <laughs> like it could I mean she's trying to to help the orphans in King's Landing and mm-hmm. and part of it Part of it is manipulative, but if the if the good works are actually done, who cares? Right, because he doesn't care at all about them. Right, all the stuff that happens that sort of unravels things are all Cersei's doing. It's her jealousy about you know that Tywin one Tywin's going to ask her to marry again and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff, and then jealousy that Joffrey, her son, is getting all this attention from Marjorie instead of from her. Yeah. And it's, but it's backfiring because Joffrey becomes more and more cruel to Cersei mm-hmm. that he does not. It's, man, he 
has got even more issues than I realized. I think that, uh, I mean, we knew he had a lot, but the way that he, one, his sort of general misogyny, but he also seems, like you said, totally afraid of the common people, which makes sense. He was attacked, mm-hmm. but he also seems like he cannot be touched. Yeah, that, that comes up in the second one, right? Yeah. Like, it, there's just, uh, he is a sick puppy. Yeah, he's like not been, I don't know. I don't, I'm not. I'm no psychologist. <laughs> oh come on, Dan! Something, Make a diagnosis. <laughs> he's he has some areas where he's just, you know, he's just stuck. He can't quite yeah. develop fully into sort of a normal reasoned person. No, no, he's got some real hangups. And I just, I love going back to the clothes a little bit. I love that mm-hmm. even though all these women are in the same place, they're dressing so differently. That Cersei's got her armored clothes. You've got um, Marjorie, who is, and they remark on this, wearing a lot fewer clothes. Yeah. Um, but Sansa is still dressing basically like she's in the North. She's wearing a lot of, and so I like that. I feel like in the first season, Sansa especially was trying to dress like the women of King's Landing, and so now all these different protagonists are are still like representing where they're from mm-hmm. but also developing their own style and Sansa is still wearing butterflies and dragon and dragonflies she wears I think a necklace of each in this episode the one other thing I wanted to mention about in King's Landing is we didn't we didn't mention too much about uh Bronn here but they used Bronn as a vehicle for something that I thought was kind of a kind of an in joke because they presented as a joke when he is going to Tyrion's quarters and Cersei's Kingsguard are outside. He refers to them as like he makes up names for them. He, he makes up some sort of like bastardization of the of the name Marin Trant mm-hmm. for Marin Trant and then like Sir what's his name or something like that. Yeah. I thought that was just funny because like, we don't know the names of any of the other Kingsguard right. that right. are actually in the show. Like they are they are all named characters in the books but like they're not mentioned so it's like oh well we don't have to give this guy credit afterwards. <laughs> if we don't give his character a name, yeah. he doesn't speak. So let's just do that. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to have Sir What's-His-Face. Right. <laughs> uh, do we want to go to Harrenhal? Yeah. I mean, no I mean, one, we're only there briefly, but yeah. No one wants to go to Harrenhal. No. Harrenhal's... Especially now. And Rob's only there for a very brief amount of time. Again, another uh, conceit of the show. He never goes there in the books. The Boltons do. Right. But... Right. Well, speaking of the Boltons, I was so curious on your read So, uh, for this line. Mm-hmm. So, Roos Bolton and Rickard Karstark? Which one? Yeah, that's Rickard. Okay. Yes. Um, they are standing together, staring at Catelyn, and Roos says, the debt will be repaid, my friend, for them and for your sons. And, and the them in this line is all the people who have been slaughtered at Harrenhal. Right. I mean, there's the obvious foreshadowing that Roos pl- is plotting against Catelyn, right? That that's the sort of debt that will be mm-hmm. repaid. And even talking about debts seems to be a Lannister thing. Is it possible at all, though? Because Karstark doesn't seem to think this is out of character for Roos. I don't know. I'm just mm-hmm. like, they actually seem like they are friends. Is there anything about Roos that actually cares as a Northman? Is, does he have any sort of regional feeling or like friendship for. I mean, mm-hmm. what did you think? I did think that was it was it did stand out to me in that way, right? It's like one, these are two kind of side characters having a conversation. Yeah. Like nobody else is right there. So how often do you get to see like them potentially being honest with one another? Mm-hmm. But I don't know, it's hard just knowing the way that Roos goes and knowing like these characters that are essentially playing the Game of Thrones, not Rickard Karstark, but Roos Bolton mm-hmm. is. 
I, I, I kind of just mistrust a little bit of everything that he says. And I see, I read ulterior motives into all of his actions. I Probably not at the time when I was mm-hmm. first watching this. He mm-hmm. might seem a little sincere. They don't set him up as quite the weirdo that they do in the books. <laughs> Which is really saying something. Because yeah. he's pretty weird in the show. Yeah. We just don't, we haven't gotten a lot of characterization for mm-hmm. him yet. We definitely start to get that even in the early parts of the season with the the hunters that mm-hmm. take over Brienne and Jamie later on in the episode. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know. I I I can't go back to not knowing about the Boltons and so I kind of can't see it as anything but like yeah. feigning, you know, sympathies. I think that's probably true, but I also like the idea of Roos being more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't complicated is what I don't know well I think but... he is he is complicated like I think the most interesting thing about the Boltons is the relationship between Roos and Ramsey mm-hmm. and the way that that gets played up and sort of the animosity that's there and the Roos's sort of open-faced sort of dislike of his son and sort of illegitimacy mm-hmm. um, that we haven't got we haven't gotten to in the show but there's always this kind of interesting dynamic and this is maybe the only time where I can think of really the relationship between he and the Northmen at large being addressed other than Red Wedding. I guess you could technically say that, but that's kind of more about this other... His relationship to the North almost seemed second hand on there. Yeah, yeah. So I was just... I don't know. It's it's easy for him to be written off as like a, a total evil guy who doesn't mm-hmm. have any of the the other feelings that the other northern lords have but this was a moment i was like maybe he does care maybe he's like he actually felt betrayed i don't know i don't know it was an interesting moment it's it's a there's growing low level unrest Mm -hmm. in rob's camp starting here it's in the second episode it becomes very explicit in the yeah yeah. it's uh and it's not it's not just the oh there's some people squabbling it's like there's definitely this air of like people are talking behind Rob's back. And maybe that's telling here that there's conversations that were given a conversation between characters who are important players in the North, but not uh, involving the King. Yeah. Yeah. And the only other thing uh, we see Kyburn and Talisa says that he's lucky for living. Mm-hmm. He, they should have left him, <laughs> <laughs> but I do. I didn't remember that this is where they found him, so I did feel pretty proud of myself that even at a shot where it like wasn't clear, I was like, "Wait a second, is that Kyburn?" And it was. And so, I guess that I, I gave myself a little pat on the back for that. Well, I mean, I might be ready to go over to Daenerys at this. Oh point. yeah, yeah, definitely. She's got a lot. She doesn't really pop up here until in a significant way until the end of the episode. We have an earlier pop in with see the see the dragons, see that progression again, like the season split being this span of time, mm-hmm. presumably, back when the show was moving at that kind of a pace. Right. And so the dragons have gotten a little bit bigger now. They're flying around. Oh. They're fishing. Wasn't it so funny, though? So they're slightly bigger. And I think she says oh, what something about, like, I don't have time. Yeah. I don't have time to wait for them to get bigger. And I'm just like, oh, we've got so many more seasons. <laughs> there, that it was just, <laughs> that that was a... She has no idea that it will take that long. And they will get very big by yeah. the time. You have plenty of time left. Yeah. <laughs> How's, uh, like, 40, 50 hours? Right. Yeah, so she's arriving at Astapor. Um, we have this shot that I... It looks super fake, but I really like it, <laughs> of when she's on her boat looking at Astapor and there's this sort of sunset. It has this very sort of, like, uh, old Hollywood painted backdrop look mm-hmm. to it. 
this great contrast between there's there's still blue sky showing through and then there's also these like deep reds and like yellows bursting through the clouds it's it's almost kind of unreal and then there's like this gold harpy shining on the shoreline and we see the city which in the books is referred to as sort of the red city for the the red bricks that it's constructed out of and it's i mean i think it's ironic in a certain sense like here's this kind of amazing scene, like one of the most kind of spectacular horizons that we've been given in the show at this point. And it's a city that contains so much horribleness. Right, right. It's maybe the worst place we've been so far. I think it is. Maybe the worst place in the world. Yeah. I mean, Harrenhal's no no, uh, piece of cake either, but yeah, that one's maybe at least usually abandoned. (laughs) (laughs) This one is full of horrible tortured life mm-hmm. so yeah well this and this was the other thing that the other sort of set piece that i thought was important for us so we have john and and his start of like okay i fight for the living and then this is where daenerys see that she really starts to care about the institution of slavery mm-hmm. and I, I don't know that that's carried perfectly throughout the show because there, I mean, there are some problems with the way things are portrayed as her as like a white savior fa- mm-hmm. uh, character, and it's also not entirely clear what that means when she goes to Westeros. Like, mm-hmm. if you're someone who fights for freedom, why do you go to a non-slaving society instead of staying in a place where you could free slaves? Right. It's not perfect. Um, it's not, and the show doesn't always uh, hit every note, but it becomes like her driving force for most of the show. Yeah. Occasionally, the show does try and address it, and even try and address those sort of internal hypocrisies within Daenerys I think that's when it when her arc is the most interesting Mm -hmm. is when she sort of seems to be self-reflexive about like what she's actually doing here like there's the dramatic march forward of the the conquering uh entities like we're going to take over we need to get the army we need to do this oh there's a little bit of like conflict here that we need to overcome internally but then to then take that extra step back and be like oh, this is actually this white savior trope. This is mm-hmm. like all these things mm-hmm. happening in the background that like people who would watch the show would be critical of. Mm-hmm. And then here we're going to sort of like show that the characters are competent of this. Um, and that happens sometimes. Yeah. Although who knows what is going on in Marine right now. True. <laughs> but That's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I bet we never find out, Dan. I'm sure Dario's got it under control. He yeah. seems like a real trustworthy guy. <laughs> God. Oh, well, I know they needed to pare down storylines, but yeah. it just like, that seems like that's probably they, not going super they well. Totally. If, if, if Daenerys was making the choice at one point in time to be like, no, I'm going to stay. I don't want this to fall, fall into ruin. She definitely is like, I'm out of here later. <laughs> yeah. Who like, cares? Who cares what happens there? <laughs> I'm sure yeah. my like, yeah, I'm sure my sellsword boyfriend will take care of things. Who talks about how much, another, another person who talks about how much he loves killing, yeah. right? So... But I love, like, Masande is one of my favorite characters. We meet Masande, and she's wearing this, like, really just, I mean, it's so much about her collar, and she's wearing something that's, like, very impractical and revealing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so I think it's a great introduction for her. Crassinus seems like a jerk. You've got his, the whip that becomes important, and the idea that the unsullied are not men, which is true both in their, that they're all eunuchs, right? Mm-hmm. But also that they're not considered people really is something even jorah repeats that Mm -hmm. these are not men and you'll be able to sort of and this maybe really is a comparison to real world slavery that like 
but you'll they're not men but you'll like give them a safe place and you mm-hmm. will look after them and they will do the work for you which seems sort of similar to what some people thought about american slavery mm-hmm. yeah i think they they also make a lot of use out of what can feel like and again i think this might be slight this might this could be on purpose sort of contained environments like we see the landscape of the city but we don't really traverse the city we're in these kind of like shopping areas essentially like for where they're trying to sell the sell the unsullied Mm -hmm. and there's this kind of what is it like a half circle deck almost Mm -hmm. that is has water literally like crashing on it like they're contained if you you go over the edge there you're going right into the ocean right um i believe this was shot in malta i think oh yeah um So then everybody's kind of crammed into there. And I think even in, I watched like a, I think it was an inside the episode or something like that. They talk about how many extras and how many like crew is like, they're actually in a very tight space in a lot of these shots. And it seems like you've got a lot of room to work with, but they've got so many people kind of crammed in there. It really fills it up fast. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good introduction. And then we also uh, meet Barrison again. And I really, the whole going through the, market with the girl who's actually a warlock i mean it's the last death rattle of the karth storyline and it's as goofy as you would expect (laughs) from something that's still holding on to karth right the only thing i like the design of the sort of beetle scorpion is that is that technically what a there's like a fictional not a man manticore oh is it technically a manticore? Maybe. Is that what manticore is? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I also, so one, the design, it has like, of some of those amazing real life beetles that have the iridescent, mm-hmm. like that was really cool. And then it has this like horrible screaming face on the tail. Mm-hmm. That was a nice detail. Yeah. But yeah, the it's dumb. And I, sorry. <laughs> no, everything Karth is dumb. <laughs> and I have no, as, as much as I was able to maybe come around to it in the in the last season, now that we're in season three, which is better in general, mm-hmm. I have no time for Karth silliness. Um, the whole like blue teeth and uh, the, like little girl. It's just like oh, it's yeah, so but, ridiculous. But we get Barrison Salmi. Yes, and yeah, he shows up under his own volition here in the mm-hmm. show, as opposed to being sent by Illyrio, and just again another sort of like cutting off that whole Illyrio thing because well I guess we don't actually know how that all pans out in the books anyway so it might be it might be overly complicated in the books as it is so maybe best to make it about personal motivations it seems complicated in the books no strong Belwas but eh, what are we gonna do yeah so that's episode uh one season three Mm -hmm. and I thought it was a really really great one it was so much fun to go through. Yeah, I really liked it. Again, I think this is probably the one that I have seen the most, and now I've seen it again. Yeah, well, we won't make you see it again oh, for a while. Good. It's a good one, though. Will you please, Dan, tell us about Dark Wings, Dark Words? Sure thing. So we meet Jurgen Reed here. Actually, he comes to Bran in a vision, and then he and Mira show up later in real life. Rob arrives at Hall, where he receives news of a torched Winterfell, and that Catelyn's father, Hoster Tully, is dead. And he and his whole camp is bound for River Run for the funeral now. Joffrey continues to push away Cersei. Sansa meets Olena Tyrell and tells she and Marjorie that Joff is a monster. Theon meets who we will later learn is Ramsay Bolton. Ramsay Snow, I guess, still at this point. Jon, in another meeting, meets the warg Orel, who is doing reconnaissance in the form of a bird and continues to sink deeper into wilding life. 
Arya, Gendry, and Hot Pie are lost in the woods, as so many of the characters in this episode are, and picked up by Thoros and the Brotherhood without banners. Later at a pub that the Brotherhood brings Arya to, they bring in the Hound as a captive, and he recognizes Arya, and this is suddenly going to change the entire dynamic here. And Brienne and Jaime are on their quest. They end up sparring with words and then later with swords and then are captured by Bolton men. And that's how we end the episode. This one gets darker. Yeah. <laughs> Anything, man, Theon on the, I don't know, what is that, a rack? What would you call that? I think that? we'd call it a rack because yeah. I don't know what else to say. Those are, those big are S. Yeah. And I'm going to say it right here. Too much Bran. Way too much Jojen. <laughs> I'm just, that's my biggest criticism, um, that we've got so much just like cocky Jojen, Mr. Exposition himself, and then just like a lot of Bran. Yeah. I don't, I didn't mind it so much, but uh, (laughs) yes, we do get, we do get a decent amount of that storyline setting up the three-eyed raven conceit more directly. I don't know. I thought we kind of had pretty directly, but now it's reiterated again. Indeed. Jurgen literally just literally interprets the dream literally as yeah. you can't kill the raven brand it's you it's you yep so there was a lot of that uh, so the episode starts with brand's dream and it's sort of a flashback with john and rob and ned but then jojen also appears mm-hmm. and i don't know that's it's, it's fine <laughs> and it, again it's the first of like i want to say half of the characters in this episode being in the woods yeah like, trudging through or being lost uh, in some form and it also again sets up what i see as a a theme of uh, visions and this kind of mirroring going on yes vision and mirroring in in general with bran of course having his visions here that's that's one thing the the episode's called dark wings dark words which i think is one of the rare cases well i guess the the dohiris was like this too where it does feel like these titles are becoming a little bit more thematic Mm -hmm. rather than something that is literally said in the episode because i don't think it is literally said in either either of these episodes yeah i don't think so but we get the bad news both from river run that Mm -hmm. uh catelyn's father has died and then also from winterfell that it's burnt and that bran and rickon are missing Mm -hmm. and when roose bolton actually presents that information to rob he comes and he he has both the notes together and then separates them into two hands and that's the the way that phrase is used dark wings dark words that they come on the ravens mm-hmm. but he kind of separates them in a sense that like in modern in a modern sense you'd think like oh good news and bad news and that's what that's kind of what rob latches on to mm-hmm. but i don't know it's I think of like this dark wings dark words it's like it's got it's probably all bad news like yeah. it's <laughs> It's and, two options. And that's even repeated because uh, Rob first tells Catelyn about her father's death. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, oh, there's more? Right. And so there's mm-hmm. just this idea that like the bad news just keeps piling up. Yeah. And it is yet another Roose Bolton interruption mm-hmm. between these characters. And he just keeps butting in and sort of breaking up whatever was going yeah. on. Yeah. And there's a lot of animosity towards Talisa in this episode yes. that Karstark tells rob that we lost the war the second you married her the moment mm-hmm. you moment we married her and which is again highlighting that in in the show it's a particularly stupid move mm-hmm. that rob makes to marry talisa in the books it makes a little more sense yeah but then the the scene that i like so much is talisa trying to befriend catelyn where mm-hmm. she's making this like 
talisman. It looks a little bit like a dream catcher, yeah. but it's got the seven gods. Then we learn John's story that she that she wished that John would die. He was taken ill, and she promised that if he recovered, that she would be like a decent person towards yeah. him. But she couldn't, and so she blames herself for all the bad things that happened. For everything, Starks. yeah, yeah. It's all my fault. Says yeah, Callan. yeah. But she doesn't doesn't keep her from like making bad decisions. Right. <laughs> so that was good. And then there's I really like the there's a so Talisa's coming off her horse, and Catelyn says she she's you're afraid of her, and she knows it. And of mm-hmm. course, she's talking about herself that mm-hmm. Talisa is afraid of Catelyn, and Catelyn knows the gender dynamics in this episode are very interesting between uh, Brienne and Jamie between Joffrey has a lot of thoughts about like what a good woman does mm-hmm. and Marjorie kind of plays into these later in the episode we meet Lady Olena who tries to put everyone at ease by saying they're only women here you have nothing to worry about mm-hmm. as if the women in the show aren't dangerous so yeah there's a lot of meditations on how dangerous women are and like what what they what their powers are because mm-hmm. also you've got you've got Arya who's the only one standing up to the Brotherhood without banners where it's like Gendry and Hot Pie are sort of in in the corner hiding in the shadows right yeah and you have those same characters you know like Sansa and Joffrey both spend a decent amount of time in the episode again looking in these mirrors mm-hmm. often with somebody else looking on with them mm-hmm. they're sort of looking at themselves looking at maybe the way that other people are looking at them being looked at mm-hmm. and again this kind of uh, self reflexivity. Um, that reinforces whatever you know, whatever thoughts they had going in their head. It usually is acting as, unlike Tyrion's looking in the reflection, which was a little bit of a reality check for him. I feel like Sansa and Joffrey, in particular, looking in the mirror, sort of like, yeah, I've, I'm doing this. I'm doing this correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm on the right track here for me. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And in both cases, they may be fooling themselves. Joffrey mm-hmm. first looks in the mirror. He's getting some new clothes made. And he gets really upset that the the tailor has like flowered, mm-hmm. and and even though it sort of makes sense that maybe if he's betro- betrothed to someone whose house was flowers, that he might wear it to reflect that. Mm-hmm. But the fabric that he likes is covered in daggers. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, this is better. This is manly. Um, so again, he's like, he's sort of fooling himself into thinking like I am a man yeah. because he is a a petulant child, yeah. right? And then Sansa also is looking in the mirror saying. Littlefinger has no bad designs towards me. He just loved my mother. And then she's also preparing herself to meet Loras. Mm -hmm. And so it's also like her fooling herself, one, about Littlefinger's motivations, and then also being like, I'm going to marry Loras because he's very attracted to me. (laughs) Joffrey is... I could. Joffrey's the sort of person he would be like... He'd be like way into listening to Rage Against the Machine and totally ignorant that like he's the the big head at the front of the machine. Yeah. Like, I just like how angry it is, that sort of thing. Yeah. It's a great scene, and this is also where Mar- uh, Cersei is trying to get some sort of read on what he actually thinks about Marjorie, mm-hmm. and and Joffrey will not listen or divulge anything. Mm-hmm. And then the other, with uh, Joffrey and Marjorie, they also have a scene in a mirror that mm-hmm. is so creepy. Yeah. I mean, that one, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, imagery going on there's some there's phallic imagery there's interesting plays with perspective when joffrey when marjorie first comes in the room joffrey is holding essentially a crossbow in the the lower left hand corner it's pointed at the door pointed Mm -hmm. at at her as she walks in 
and also he again he happens to hold the crossbow pretty low on his body it's very it's between his legs mostly, yeah um even later when he's shooting it he doesn't like hold it up to his face he like shoots from the hip yeah and there's an odd sort of she reaches for his hand but it's on the crossbow mm-hmm. so she's sort of reaching between his legs he's deeply uncomfortable with it but then he has her hold the crossbow so there's like some sort of he's there's some sort of acceptance even he won't be touched uh, physically, that he's like, well, you can hold my crossbow. Yeah. But then the the creepiest part is that he says, do you, th-, or she says something like, she, sh- man, she is so good. She can really <laughs> read him. That she was like, it must be so exciting to see, to pull your finger here and see something die over there. Mm-hmm. And then he, as I was like, could you, could you kill something? Yeah. And then she, again, sort of feeling him out, would you like to watch me? Yeah. And he would. <laughs> and so she's, it's not clear. I mean, I, uh, Maybe if someone watching this for the first time might have thought that Marjorie was going to go, like, the relationship between Ramsey and Miranda, mm. that there could have been this, like, that maybe Marjorie was actually into the sort of sadistic things that mm-hmm. Joffrey likes. But I think it's clear that she's not. But in that in that moment, when they're staring at each other in the mirror, both holding the crossbow, and she's saying, I guess I'll kill something, like, mm. if you want me to, that maybe Marjorie could go bad. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of, and maybe it's not that tough to read into, but like play on sort of like the way that we feel as audience members watching this because the follow-up scene to this is cut to Theon. Mm-hmm. And so she literally says like, w- would you like to see me like essentially kill something or like, would you enjoy that? And mm-hmm. then like, here's like scene of like somebody being <laughs> tortured and killed and sort of like, it's kind of like asking us as the audience, hey, do you want to watch this? And we're all like, no, <laughs> we don't. And I just, you know, I'm not sure what that says, but I feel like to to play that kind of whiplash of Mm -hmm. like, okay, here's Marjorie doing this manipulation and like it's getting really disturbing, but she's still acting, we think. But then here's like a reality situation. We're like, here's actually somebody getting tortured and all these things done to them. And what do you think, audience? Do you into it? It's like, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. I... So a show like Westworld, I think, is very critical of the audience's desire for violence and mm-hmm. sex. Do you think Game of Thrones is similarly critical? Mm. I don't. Actually, I don't think so. It's like I mean, you do want this, right? I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> like, this is the beginning of the Theon torture arc. In the books, we just don't hear for Theon for a long time. It's like, and he comes back later. It's like, oh yeah, Theon. And he's also physically, they say he looks like an 80-year-old man, right? That his hair has gone totally white and he's Mm -hmm. just like much changed. So like we literally don't hear from him for books. And these would be, again, books that were released over years worth of writing time. And so like we don't see Theon for a long period of time, Mm -hmm. essentially. And then he finally comes back. And essentially all the stuff that would be in the show right here, which would be technically like book three material, is stuff that would have been going on, but we never actually have it. It's all... Uh, we get some stories and we get some like horrible uh, memories of Theon of his torture later, but we're not actually present for any of it. And so in this televised format, we've been given access to witness all of this stuff firsthand. So it's definitely like a really brutal choice to make, to be like, we're actually going to show this stuff, mm-hmm. as opposed to say like Bran's training arc season, where they're <laughs> like, he's training. Whatever, you know, stuff's going on, but 
maybe that'd be really interesting to see. I but... don't know. I think cynically yeah. that that would have been really boring to see. Yeah. And that even though the torture is so horrible, like it, you're, it's manipulating you into having a very visceral reaction. Yeah. Even though like I could hear he was tortured and have some sort of idea what that's like, where it's like, I have no idea what Bran was doing. Right. Yeah. But I guess that's why we watch the show, right? <laughs> is it? <laughs> so I'll, I'll be curious to see how I maybe think about Theon's arc here as, as it continues to go on. It hasn't been... We've had a couple gross things happen to him so far, but nothing... Well, there's some implied stuff. They do cut away right right before stuff seems like it start to, would start to get really bad. Yeah, um, yeah that's... It's going to be rough for a while. Yeah, I mean, but just as far as thinking about, like, how does this show adapt this book? Usually, in most cases, this has been cutting material. Let's shortcut this. Let's, you know, gloss over this detail that's a little extraneous. Let's Mm -hmm. keep the plot moving. And in this case, it seems like, well, we've cast Alfie Allen. We want to keep him visible. He's a character that we've been following. He's doing a really good job. Yeah. He had he was really some of the best performances last season, yeah. Um, and so we want to keep that going. He's this. There's nothing. He's not doing anything other than being tortured. They also, time. I think, the show, and it and it may be an actual problem with the show that, especially with casting, that there is nothing appealing or compelling about Book Ramsey. They say mm-hmm. he's like made like like his face is like a lump of clay, mm-hmm. and that he just seems he's like a sadist, but he's like dull mm-hmm. and blunt and there's something about the actor who plays Ramsey is a good looking person mm-hmm. and they give him um sort of a sexual life right with Miranda and like so there's they are flirting with more so than Joffrey who is I don't think made compelling in that way mm-hmm. that like they present Ramsey as like a very scary mm-hmm. but possibly like like I don't know like a Manson family guy Right. Yeah. Well, he's, there's, like, a, there's a comic book villainousness to him, yeah. and I think that comic bookiness is what makes it like it, it's just like it's flirting with like making him acceptable. The same way like we have villains in like Star Wars or something like that, where it's like, oh, this guy blew up a planet and that killed billions of people. But like, oh, let's dress yeah. up as him for Halloween. I guess you're right. I guess you're right. But there's if they had stayed a little bit closer to the book depiction. I don't think he he wouldn't have been as compelling, and it wouldn't have it like. I know that there are people who root for Ramsey mm-hmm. in the show, and it's gross. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I think that that would not be true if it was closer to the book depiction. Mm. So I they I think they have made a choice to make his cruelty attractive to some, yeah. and that is maybe a reprehensible choice. Yeah, well, maybe a. Well, I'm already thinking it though, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about. it. I was thinking maybe we should wait till we actually have more than oh, just a split second of sorry, Ramsey. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm thinking it now too. So, it, and because it relates to Joffrey's depiction in this episode, I think the the sexual nature of it goes says a lot because again, as you were saying, they do seem like they give one Ramsey a bit of sex appeal, and mm-hmm. that we see that he does have sort of like relationships disturbing as they may be with you know people that he knows in mm-hmm. Dreadfort and Joffrey on the other hand is like seems to be repellent of sexuality yes he doesn't want to be touched he is presented with prostitutes and he'd rather just see them beaten mm-hmm. and it seems like it's maybe not even really a sexual thing for him it's just like him 
torturing toys. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's he doesn't have that angle. He doesn't have that sort of charisma that you could latch on to. Even if it's I mean, it's a dark charisma. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that I'm like a Ramsey fan, but like it it exists, mm-hmm. right? But where where Joffrey, you're right, that there's it seems he, he doesn't have that wavelength at all. And so you d- the audience also doesn't have it, yeah. right? Ramsey's clever. Jo- yeah. Joffrey's like kind of a blunt object. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's I mean he's a child, so but like that that's part of it. Right. So I I don't know. It's it's a weird if we're if we're just talking about the choice to sort of emphasize Theon's torture mm-hmm. and I think lean into the Ramsey character, I don't know that it's something I can sign off on. Yeah. Let's 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 see how it develops, I guess. Yeah. We'll we'll see this time around if if we continue to think that as as time goes on. Oh boy, where were we? <laughs> I feel like uh, we let's talk about something a good, happier. A good tangent, but yeah, definitely a big tangent. Let's talk here. about Sansa and Lady Olena yeah. and Marjorie. Oh yeah, and yep. their meeting because that was a nice thing. Thank you. Thank <laughs> that's that's perfect because we meet Olena and she is such a different sort of character than anybody else we've met. The way that she talks, and it's even like this in the books. The way that she talks about all these things that were unspoken in every other facet of things, or even potentially just whispers. She's outright saying it, even speaking ill of her own family, Mm -hmm. members of her family, I guess I should say. Yeah. There's definitely the feeling that Sansa is out of her depth, Mm -hmm. but also that she's never seen, especially women, be able to play the game this way. Mm -hmm. And that Olena is giving some things away, right? She'll insult her late husband she'll insult her son but she's also getting information in return mm-hmm. so she's so she's really good at this and it is it's it's so it's so much fun to see yeah i'm i was glad that she was back yeah she just insults basically all the men around her mm-hmm. i mean she even says of loris like he's good at knocking men off horses that doesn't make yeah. him wise right and she said you know i thought it was treason there was no reason to marry renly mm-hmm. so it was, it's it's good and then the, the moment where Sansa lets her guard down. I mean, it works is the point mm-hmm. because Sansa, who has been really good about, I mean, sort of good. She's been sort of good about <laughs> sort about of keeping good. a... It's maybe a, getting a little loose around Shay. <laughs> um, but that she tells Olena and Marjorie what they need to know and will learn that it ends up being very important information for Olena. Mm-hmm. But it really, that with like having Loras bring her in, having uh, Sansa's favorite food and her being surprised like mm-hmm. her not Sansa does not realize the way she's being played mm-hmm. but it, I don't know it gives us clues to like how good the Tyrells are at doing what they do mm-hmm. I mean she's getting played by Littlefinger at the same time too <sighs> Littlefinger trots out his line that like again that he seems to know where Arya is yeah like and I think that's I didn't actually notice that until this time around again that he uses that that line specifically that he also used with Kat um, so he's one, he's trying the same tricks that he did with Catelyn with Sansa. So he's applying that same logic, mm-hmm. making a parallel between those two characters in his mind. And that he's uh, being duplicitous in a very clear way that the audience actually is up on. And, and it's less of like, oh, is Littlefinger kind of like actually going to help her? Like, yeah. if I'd, I feel like if I'd actually been paying closer attention the first time around, I'd be like, no, obviously. But that's more complicated in the books, mm-hmm. I think. That it, part of it has to go where she ends up. And with her sort of safe, safe-ish in the veil in the mm-hmm. books, it's not, 
I mean, it may get worse for her, but it gets so bad in the show right. that it's it'd be like, oh, he's the worst. Yeah. He was out, like, he ruined her life from the beginning. I mean, he's out to exploit her one way or another. Some of those ways worse than others. Yeah. Oh, oh Sansa. <laughs> so then we have Arya, Popeye, and Gendry, and they get discovered by the Brotherhood Without Banners. There's a shot here. They, they're, they're in this, again, they're in the woods. Um, <laughs> There's this kind of ruined wall that has these big openings in it, and they have it framed with them sort of in the middle. And again, maybe this is reading too much into it, but I read it as like two eyes again because I'm seeing like this thing, oh, and there's yeah. like a whole big holes on both sides of them that the Brotherhood is sort of like seeing right through them, and they're they're trying to hide, but they're clearly being seen. It's like it's almost like they're trying to hide like right in front of something's face it's mm-hmm. like obviously you're going to be seen you can and then they can literally be seen there though Arya is still going to be having this kind of disguise of, of who she is but that will only last so long right we meet thoros and Angai. no sign of beric dondarrion yet but we do get we do get to introduce to those two characters yeah we see at least for a little bit that Arya is not as competent as she thinks she is mm-hmm. She has a lot of bluster, but she draws a sword on Thoros and he disarms her pretty handily. <laughs> what is it? Oh, it's a really good line with that too. He's like, "Who taught you how to fight?" And said, "My brother." She said, "My brother's taught me." And oh, what's the what's the line? He disarms her and he says, "Like to your brothers," to and your like brothers. does a, does yeah. a toast yeah. or something. It's really sort of mocking, but it's pretty pretty good. You have to like we're fans of Arya, but you have to like I felt like I was like, yeah, I got to give that one to Thoros. <laughs> it's yeah, pretty good. Yeah. No, this is Thor. Like the the Brotherhood without banners right now seems like a jolly sort of Robin Hood camp. Like mm-hmm. they actually seem like fun, which is again maybe an- another thing that's a shame to see. I'm sorry, I'm pulling so much from the books today. I feel like actually it was better in the books, <laughs> but to see how that changes over time, especially when Lady Stoneheart is in charge, that it is no longer jolly yeah. or like a fun group of guys. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. um, like a horrible murderous uh like Death squad yeah with like with with uh imperfect justice and bad trials yep. yeah it becomes a, a corrupt sort of distortion of the merry men and yeah so too bad i don't know thoros just had to go get eaten by a z- zombie bear <laughs> i don't know whatever yeah so i you know there's not too much here with with Arya at this point just that big plot twist of them capturing the hound and yeah. and her being revealed um is there any reason for him to say what are you doing with the stark bitch is there any reason for him to feel that way about Arya, or even to be surprised that she's there uh i mean he could be i i don't know <laughs> he's Sandra McLean seems agitated in general and liable to curse. Yeah. I don't know. I was just like, there's no need for that hound. <laughs> She's I, a child. She can be here. It's okay. Everyone, yeah. The, the hound just likes to curse, I think. Uh, yeah. I guess he does. So, the Jamie Brienne battle on the bridge. Mm-hmm. So good. Mm-hmm. Really well filmed. And then you also see Jamie I mean they, they had a, a little shot before which is just has this great line where he says he doesn't blame Brienne for falling in love with Renly because we don't get to choose who we love mm-hmm. but what's so great here I mean his his hands are bound and hers aren't mm-hmm. but she is going to win yeah and so that was one of the reasons I love this fight so much yeah it's you know Jamie is clearly at a disadvantage but he's so cocky he thinks that he can get away with it anyway he totally underestimates Brienne 
and he's going to suffer for it though obviously it's they're both going to suffer for it more than than any one person individually will yeah and so it ends with his name is Locke, right they call him Locke in the show yeah okay. he's it's an amalgamation of some like invented character for the show mm-hmm. and who we could probably understand to be Vargo Hote right. from the books, which is supposed to be this kind of goat-faced looking guy. This guy's pretty goat-faced looking with his uh, goatee and everything. Yeah. So it seems, and he's supposed to be the, the leader of the Bloody Mummers, who is, I don't know, there's a lot more people who are like in various points in time in charge of Hall mm-hmm. and given sort of yeah rule of the place. And so he's one of them at a certain point in time in the books. and He's going to fulfill some of the other character traits of that character right (laughs) but it's not only is jamie embarrassed by he's going to be defeated by brianne brianne but also that his shenanigans are like talk about like being sort of cast down and being too cocky Mm -hmm. that like if he had just walked across the bridge (laughs) they both would have been safe but he i don't know he still has farther to fall i guess until rock bottom but this is the beginning right i I guess it's already started we're getting close to rock bottom yeah it's a pretty fun swordplay in the fight, too. The way that they sort of change stances, mm-hmm. they're sort of examining one another, the way that things even change as the fight goes on. Like, once Brienne is clearly knows that she's got it, she essentially just starts fighting him one-handed. Yeah. One, maybe to, to leave one hand sort of free to punch him, to potentially knock him out, but also just to, like, show him, like, you're not going to win this. <laughs> like, you have no hope. Yeah. You're bound. You've been in chains for like an entire year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're probably undernourished. Mm-hmm. He's certainly dirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's where we're left. And it's interesting, just uh, we have so many characters who are being menaced by Bolton men. They just don't really know it yet. Like, right. Theon doesn't know who's got him. And Jamie and Brienne have no idea how bad it's about to get. So, and the audience too at this time doesn't really know what it means. Mm-hmm. And so I like that. Like, we had a hard time reading Roos, that it's like, he has really spread his his sort of pieces on the board in a way that, like, no one knows that it's him. Mm-hmm. And it's the, that it's his men that are coming for Jamie and Brienne, even though, you know, we could, we could criticize Catelyn's choice here to sort of go with this plan. It does feel like we are meant to be sympathetic to the plan because it is the Stark plan. Yeah. And Brienne is there, and we like her, and we... And we don't want her to get murdered yeah. for following Kat's orders. Right. And we've we've maybe started to find something charming about Jamie. Like, in these couple episodes, I think it's really starting to turn a corner mm-hmm. from him being this sort of brutal Lannister antagonist to be more kind of like... Maybe he just, you know, he mocks people as a self-defense mechanism, <laughs> right. you know? Um, we start to see start to see that side. He as, needs as a he hug gets, too. Yeah, as he starts to get broken down more and more, we, yeah. we start to see that side of him a bit more. <laughs> and yeah, I forgot I forgot what I was going to say about the Boltons there, but <laughs> they've also burnt down. They are the ones who burnt down Winterfell, right? Yes, they are. Okay, um, they definitely in the books, and I don't know that anybody ever says it explicitly in the show because we don't actually know how the Iron Man, if they got out of there, what happened to them. Mm-hmm. The way they treat the Iron Man later in Mode Kalen would seem to imply that they did not let them get out alive. Mm-hmm. But in, the, in, that, in that case, they would have burned it down as well. Though later when the Boltons are going to occupy Winterfell, it seems like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have burned it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're cruel. Yeah. And, but they're not necessarily forward-thinking. Correct. Um, so anyway, yeah. Two really good episodes mm-hmm. uh, that are getting darker and darker. Yep. I thought Daniel Minhan did a did a fantastic job here. 
our episodes next week are going to be Walk of Punishment and and now his watch has ended and we're going to see the directorial debut of David Benhoff. All right. And uh, then Alex Graves will do uh, episode four and we haven't seen him either. So I'm curious to see what uh, the WB has in store for us on that front. It better be good. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, just to to bring things to a close here, of course, you can always follow us on Twitter at MummersFarsePod is our being our handle. You can get all of our podcasts on themummersfarse.libsyn.com. And you can send us an email sometime at themummersfarsepod at gmail.com. Do you have any thoughts about torture and Ramsey and Theon? Let us know. <laughs> yes, please. Let us know if you are pro-Ramsey. I, actually, I don't <laughs> want to Actually, you know what? <laughs> if you're pro-Ramsey, maybe just stay quiet. Yeah. The less said, the better. Keep that to yourself. And uh, all right, we'll see everybody next week, and we'll see what happens next. All right, bye, Dan. All right, see ya. Bye. Bye.